Just before I begin, we're going to look at the first few seconds, I suppose, of the Alpha course. Hi, I'm Nikki. Welcome to Alpha. Life is busy. Every day we ask so many questions. What should I wear? What's the weather going to be like? What's happening today? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are those bigger questions. Like, why am I here? Where am I heading? Is this it? Is there more to life than this? These are life's big questions. But there's rarely enough time to think them through properly. We all have different perspectives on the meaning of life and faith. And Alpha is an opportunity to explore life's big questions. This is a great place to come together and talk about them openly and honestly. I'm Gemma. I'm Toby. And this is Alpha. Okay, a little flavour of Alpha, but it's a good introduction to our subject this morning, which is the question that many people in Southgate have been asking us, what's the point of life? Why are we here? Is there more to life than this? What's the point of our existence? What's our purpose as human beings? Well, I think if we asked a thousand different people what they thought the answer was, we'd probably get nearly a thousand different answers. Although maybe some of them would be similar. But there would be many very different answers. And so I approach this question with some humility. If I think of my own life as I'd grown up, as a child I never really thought about the purpose of life. As a late teenager I would have said that the purpose of life is to experience as much of life as possible. Albeit that I probably had a rather narrow idea of what life was, which was probably went something like sex, drugs and rock and roll. As a young married family man, I would have said, well, it's about bringing up children and providing for my wife and family, and while still trying to have a good time, of course. At the age of 40, it was more about climbing the corporate ladder, negotiating the teenage years of my own children, and searching for new experiences in my fast-approaching middle age. Experiences like bungee jumping after three bottles of red wine over Helsinki Harbour at midnight on Midsummer's Day. Yes, I really did that. Or learning to fly aeroplanes without engines, another interesting hobby. And uh, learning to ride a large, unpredictable horse over jumps, which landed me in an ambulance being rushed to hospital. But I guess the point is that at the age of 40, I still didn't have a clue what the purpose of life was. I just kept lurching around, latching onto one thing after another in the vain attempt to find something that would bring some kind of sense of fulfilment. And many people who are much better people than me, if you ask them what they thought the purpose of life was, would say things like, well, to bring up my kids and give them a good start in life. You often hear that. Oh, I live for my children. But actually, that can't be the purpose of life. For a start, they're gone by the time you're 50, and these days that's only halfway through your life. Well, for some it's not even that. 
And others, well, don't have children. And so that can't possibly be the meaning of life, even if it is a very important aspect of some people's life. Others unashamedly chase after riches or celebrity, whether that's on a, a small scale or on a grand scale. Here's what actor Jim Carrey had to say about that. He said, I wish that everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know that that's not the answer. Someone speaking from experience. So how do we start to think about this question? Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Well, perhaps we should rather go back a step and ask the question, is there a purpose to life? Is there any purpose at all? Because actually here I think we can make a start. We can say like C.S. Lewis said in his book, Miracles, and in fact in other books as well, that there are two major worldviews on the purpose of life. And the first is the naturalist view. It says that life on planet Earth is an extraordinary accident in an unthinking, random universe where human beings are nothing more than the chance product of a blind evolutionary process which got started all by itself and there is nothing more than we can simply touch, feel, see or measure. In other words, there is no... Oh, I've gone the wrong way. Oh, I've jumped on. In other words, there is no God... There is no creator, there is no ultimate purpose to life. And this is called atheism. And in this view of the world, there is no intrinsic right or wrong, there's no good or bad, there's only man-made ideas of what's right or wrong, or good or bad. Because just as we consider treading on an ant a morally neutral act, or a lion killing a wildebeest a morally neutral act. So human beings are simply the top of the evolutionary ladder at this particular moment in time. Survival of the fittest rules. That said, many people who are atheists could also call themselves humanists. And humanists are atheists who also believe in living morally ethical lives on the basis of Reason and humanity, that's quoting the humanist website. In brief, humanists place human welfare and happiness at the centre of all their ethical decision-making. And it sounds nice, it sounds quite good, and to an extent it can encourage lives lived peaceably and caringly of others, but it doesn't offer any ultimate purpose for life. We're still nothing more than a meaningless accident of evolution. As the humanist minister at Kirsty's uncle's funeral pronounced during the service, and I quote, from oblivion we come and to oblivion we go. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound very enticing to me. In effect, humanism says, look, We're here, we we exist, so we might as well get along together. But it has no answer to the question that the people of Southcote were putting to us, namely, why are we here? What's What's the reason, what's the purpose for our existence?
So these worldviews of atheism or humanism are held by between, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the world's population. It's higher in Western Europe, it's a bit higher in Russia, and higher in China. In both those ex-communist countries, there's actually, though, a resurgence of religious belief. Um, and so, in fact, those numbers make for, for atheism may come down again. But what it means is that 90% of the world's population, or a little bit more, hold the opposite worldview which is the supernaturalist view, which says that apart from what we can see, touch, feel, taste and hear, and outside of the dimensions of space and time within which we live, there exists a supernatural entity or entities which Christians call God, Jews call Yahweh, Muslims call Allah, and other religions call other names, from whom our whole universe is derived and even sustained. The Bible tells us that God created everything. Now, just for a moment, put aside the thought that might have come to you in the last few seconds, which is that all of these different religions understand something different about this supernatural entity, which of course is true. But they also have one thing in common, and that is that they all maintain that there is a real ultimate meaning and purpose for our lives, and that that meaning is to be discovered in the relationship between the supernatural entity and the universe that it created. In other words, the meaning of life is to be discovered in the relationship between us and the God who created us. A bit earlier, I described my rather checkered journey in life, trying to discover the meaning and purpose for my life from childhood through to the age of 40. I certainly wasn't looking like good vicar material then. But something happened when I was 41 years old which allowed me to kind of leapfrog what could have been a very long process of searching. Because in March 2000, as many of you know, in a little church in South Africa, I found myself... I wasn't there by choice, I was there by chance, I wasn't a churchgoer. But I was ambushed by God so completely that I walked out of that little church, not particularly persuaded by anything I'd heard or seen, but knowing without a doubt that I'd met the creator of the universe. And the overwhelming feeling I had, and it's never left me, is that I was loved, unconditionally loved, forgiven and accepted. Not by the people there, although they were lovely, but by the supernatural entity who filled me that morning with such a feeling of love and joy which I'd never known before. And that experience gave me some clues which led me on a quite a frantic search, actually, to try and nail down and understand exactly what had happened that morning. Because please realise, I wasn't a Christian at that time. I made no connection whatsoever that morning between what I'd experienced and the person of Jesus Christ. And over the next six months or so, I devoured the bookshelves of Waterstones in Broad Street in Reading, reading everything I could get my hands on from New Age religion to Buddhism to reincarnation to Hinduism, you name it, 
in an attempt to try and put a name to the face, as it were. But after several months of reading, none of the things that I read convinced me that they described the God I had encountered in that little church in South Africa. It seemed to me that most of the other major world religions required me to jump through hoops, to attain some great state of purity or perfect obedience or state of mind, which I simply was beyond me. How could I hope to be that good? I was quite attracted initially by some of the books on New Age religion. They were a bit different. They lost credibility, though, when I came to realise that their mantra was effectively, do what you like, anything goes, sleep around, let your wife sleep around, it's all cool, don't worry. Didn't strike me like a good plan for life. (laughs) No, the clues that I'd picked up in that little church in South Africa were very strong and completely authentic, and I knew that I hadn't found a match. But six months later, I decided to start going on an alpha course. And it's somewhat ironic, actually, that after my experience in that little church, Christianity was almost the last major faith that I took a look at. And that was really the first time in my life that I began to engage with the person of Jesus. And as I started to do that, some very large bells began to ring. I have to say it was challenging, but it was enthralling. It was, it was challenging because what Christianity told me was that all of the rubbish in my life, the awful things I'd done in the past, the times I'd hurt people, the lies I'd told, the selfishness of my behaviour, all these things really mattered. And although that was very sobering, it was also refreshing. Because I knew deep down that they did matter. I knew deep down that I was carrying guilt and shame from many things in the past. And they couldn't just be shrugged off. They had to be dealt with. There are real consequences to those things. And crucially, they create a partition between us and God. But what I also heard about was the grace. And that was the biggest bell of all that rang. I heard about a love so great that God himself had paid the price for all that rubbish in my life. All the sin, as the Bible calls it. As Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he paid the penalty for me. And in doing so, he set me free of all the guilt and shame. And I knew without doubt that that was the explanation for the love and the joy that I'd encountered in that little church in South Africa. I was being set free. I was being forgiven. I was experiencing the unconditional grace of God in Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked this earth, many people came to him and asked him what the meaning of life was. And his most frequent answer to that question 
which it was in our Bible reading this morning, is this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, we're to live in a relationship of love with the God who created us. And we're to love others. Firstly, we are loved. That's the good news. We are loved. That was the overwhelming feeling I had that morning in the little church in South Africa, and it's never left me. I knew that I was loved, just for who I am. I didn't have to jump through hurdles or do this or do that. I simply had to accept the love of God. And when we grasp that, then it's not hard to return that love and and want to do nothing else but to love God back. Jesus died for us. How can we not love him? And I'm convinced that much of the joy I felt and I still feel today is that having encountered the God of unconditional love, who is outside of time and space and yet so accessible and so intimate, whose spirit we can commune with and be transformed by, there comes with this the sure and certain hope that this supernatural life is not restricted by physical death, that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will all who follow him, who put their trust in him. And so finally we discover that the true meaning of life is love itself. To know we're loved by the God who created us. To live full of the love which he has poured into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And to let that love overflow from ourselves to others around us. And to do that in this life now and in the life to come. Let's pray.